welcome to That's Absurd. Please elaborate the lately science, mostly fun, jokey show about silly questions and their possible real-world answers and implications. I am a, a host, one of the hosts, Julian Huguet. One of. One of. I'm the other host. Yeah, the, I'm the other half of the podcast, Trace Dominguez, the, also uh, We didn't host. say halves. We, that's assuming, it's assuming a lot. I feel oh. like you do so much more. 60-40? Yeah, you, you maintain like the document that like makes sure we actually make episodes and, and contact guests. Thanks for that recognition. I really like, thank you for that. I needed that today. I feel like the, the vestigial appendage on this duo, right? I'm like the... <laughs> that's not true at all. That's not true at all. And then there's Kyle. There's our, our producer, Kyle. Oh, man. Who yeah, also... producer Kyle. I think we could go 60-40, us or the 40, yeah. Kyle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that's fair. <laughs> Kyle's like, does so much to make this actually sound good and like not be a three-hour ramble fest in your podcast feed. So take a moment, listeners, and thank Kyle if you're enjoying this show. Yeah. Give a little, give a little yeah, Kyle to we, the universe. Everybody needs a little. We Kyle. should be thankful, right? That's a good, good segue into what oh. we're doing this week, and that is a Thanksgiving themed episode. That's right. If this is your first time listening to that's absurd, please elaborate. Happy Thanksgiving to you, anyway. But what are you doing listening to this yeah. podcast? Shouldn't you be hanging out? With your it does come out on Thursday, doesn't it? Yeah, <laughs> it does. That's right. So every episode of That's Absurd, Please Elaborate, we get a question from the audience or from each other or from our guest, and we try and do the actual science research into it. Julian and I are both science communicators. We have 20-some years of experience between the two of us. So we take all of that science communication experience and we try and do something good with it uh, and usually fail. But that's still <laughs> fine because the questions are so weird. It's sometimes amazing. So th- th- this is a fun podcast. I hope you enjoy it. And happy Thanksgiving. Eat some you know, turkey or some, some tofurkey. Assuming you're American, right? We, yeah. Oh, a true. third of our audience is from outside the States, which considering the sheer volume of bad and offensive accents that we do, I'm astonished. I, I am too. Also, if uh, you're Canadian, I guess, uh, happy Thanksgiving last yeah, month. Yeah, back in October. Happy Canadian Thanksgiving. Yeah, you know, when the harvest actually a happened. Month ago. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yes. Julian, what are, you, what are you doing for Thanksgiving? Oh, man. Um... I have not thought that I, I I really haven't planned anything. I'm just gonna try and probably see some friends down here in Southern California. A lot of my family is scattered, diaspora across uh, the globe. So gonna see some found friends down here. Get together, have uh, have some turkey and tofurkey and vegetarian options. It'll be it'll be a fun day. I love that. I yeah. Love that. I think we're going to do something similar. We're You and I are both in L.A., so we're going to meet up with people that we know out here. Um, Julian is from California originally, but I'm from the Midwest, uh, where the corn comes from. And so we'll have a lot of corn uh, and corn-based products, I'm sure. But it'll, it'll be great. It'll you're be like really good. You're, you're children of the corn is what you and your Midwestern friends yeah, are. That's that's what we call Raphael. Yeah. <laughs> Children of the corn. <laughs> Children of the corn. <laughs> I think actually that transitions us very well to our two questions for this week. So this week, my question does have to do with vegetables. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yours has to do with humans and how they come in different colors and shapes. Yes. Why don't we start with yours this week since, uh, okay. you know, I'm, I'm hungry and I want to get to it. All right. Sure. So my question comes from one of our listeners, Chris J. And he asks, if we only ate organic vegetables... How many people would starve? Mm. He goes on to say that we are constantly nagged at that we should all be eating an organic vegetarian slash vegan diet, but organic yields are far lower and many farm animals are reared on land unsuitable for growing crops. So I would assume we'd be totally unable to feed the world's population. And plus, to be honest, I don't really want to stop eating meat. Mm. You know, okay. based on the wow. beginning of how he was phrasing his explanation, I kind of figured out the end, right? Where he was like, we're being <laughs> nagged yes. at to go go vegetarian. I'm like, this guy yeah. loves the meats. I can already yeah. tell. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's exactly what I wrote here. I'm like, whoo, man, I don't think we've ever had someone ask a question from such a point of view before. Yeah, yeah. Chris, Chris <laughs> wants to know. But, you know, you may be surprised by the answer. I'm also thinking, just hearing the question, too, it kind of sounds like a couple things being mixed because there's the question of, like, if we all went only vegetarian, right, right how many people could we feed versus organic farming methods, right? Whatever the right. specifics of that involve. 
uh, which yeah, I'm not totally I, clear on. Yeah, and by the end of this, you will be more clear on it. I can't promise total clarity, but either way, uh, yeah, I think this is this was kind of how I approached it too. Um, and I just want to say, organic, not organic, vegan, vegetarian, whatever you're doing, you know, just think about the planet. That's really what this is going to come down to at the end of the day. Think about the planet at least once in a while when you're trying to think about what you're going to eat. Mm. So, in 1971, we're going to go back there. Oh, all the way the US, back to the first Thanksgiving. All the way back to the first Thanksgiving in 1971. <laughs> 52 years ago. <laughs> wow, is, did you just do that math? Off oh my God, yeah. What, 2023 wow. minus 1971. Yeah, oh, yeah. That calculus class is really giving you some math skills. Yeah, simple addition and subtraction now. <laughs> I finally have it under my belt just in time you to be confused by integrals. <laughs> so... In 1971, the U.S. Secretary of Agriculture, uh, his name was Earl Butts, said, <laughs> I, I know, I know, <laughs> I, said, I'm so sorry, Earl Butts. He was a jerk, so I'm fine. <laughs> you know he gets that all the time. I'm sure he did. Maybe maybe not in the 70s, I don't know. Were the butt jokes as uh, prominent then? Did, I don't did know. Did butt have a different meaning back then? Was it... <laughs> It's a long time it's more ago. More of a modern adoption that we think of it as like a posterior, I don't know. I don't know. So... Earl Butts said, before we go back to organic agriculture in this country, somebody must decide which 50 million Americans we are going to let starve. Wow. Or go hungry. Yeah. And so, wow. That was, and so that's what, when I was researching this, I read that quote and I'm like, does he know Chris? The question mm. asker? Because this is the kind of framing that Chris has also put the question in. And I think the less kind of biased framing is, could we farm organically and feed everyone? Mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. that's the real question. Not if we only ate organic, how many would starve? Yeah. It's really like the other way around. Could we feed everyone? If we switched all current farmland to only organic, right? Because you'd right. probably see a drop in yield. But could theoretically, we sustain the world population only using organic farming methods. Right. And I love I love that that way of framing it. I didn't even think of that. But yes, yeah. it's exactly true. So the answer, by the way, unequivocally, yes. We could absolutely switch to organic farming and feed everyone. Wow. But that so, is not without some really big caveats, like huge caveats. With the current acreage no. that we grow? No. Okay. No. Okay. That's one of the caveats. So you uh. nailed that. We would need more farmland uh, just in general. So Nature Communications and Environmental Research Letters, uh, two big journals, both had studies that came out in 2017 and both agreed that organic farming requires more land. NatureCom said, quote, 100% conversion of organic agriculture would need more land than conventional agriculture. Super clear, super simple. Why? Because organic agriculture doesn't work the same way as modern farming. And that's because it's not considered a factory. When you think of the way that we grow things in a modern uh, kind of framing, we're growing them as if the planet is a factory. We're trying to yield as much as possible from every square inch of soil, from every animal. We're trying to get the maximum amount of meat or other product. And we're not going to do that with organic because it's not being conceived of in the same way. So there was a study out of Cranfield University, it's in North England, Wales, and they converted to 100% organic and their yields dropped 40%. It's a okay. lot. So yeah, they so you'd have to make it up with more land, right? Can I mean, can we back up a second though? Yeah. Yeah. What makes a farming practice organic versus not organic? You're the best. That's exactly oh, they, where I was about to go. Thank so, you. Great. So if you think about the Cranfield University study, right, this is this is also what I think people assume when they think of organic. They hear the criticisms, which are it needs more land. You know, mm -hmm. your yields, they dropped 40 percent. And the experts say this doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because of how we actually do the work. No one's going to flip a switch and all of a sudden everything's going to be organic. What we're going to do is we're going to convert the things we need to convert or that are the best choices to convert. Hmm. But first, we should define what organic means, right? Please. Organic, it comes from food labeling more than anything else. The USDA and the European Union uh, both have regulations defining what organic means. USDA, by the way, meaning 
being the U.S. Department of Agriculture. So, and then within the U.S., there are different definitions as well. So the EPA has a different one than the USDA. So, oh, no. And that, right. the FDA, Food and Drug Administration, right, might have a different one, like, for your food labeling. Right. And so organic means some specific things and doesn't mean a lot of other things. So the EPA definition says, organically grown food is food grown and processed using no synthetic fertilizers or pesticides. Pesticides derived from natural sources, such as biological pesticides, may be used in producing organically grown food. Hmm. The USDA definition says organic food is produced without using conventional pesticides, fertilizers made with synthetic ingredients, or sewage sludge, bioengineering, or ionizing radiation. Notice they don't really have a lot of overlap, and both of those are considered organic. Well, the... the Honestly, though, the fertilizer thing, both of them say no synthetic fertilizers. Yes. Right? And then... I feel like they phrase the the pesticides thing differently, but they're getting at the same thing. One is yes. like, can't use any synthetic ones, but if it's some natural thing that kills bugs, like naturally occurring, organically made thing that kills bugs, then that's okay. There exactly. seems to be some overlap, and then definitely, it's, it's like a Venn diagram, but, is what I'm hearing. Right, and the USDA definition includes bioengineering, ionizing radiation, and sewage sludge, whereas EPA just says, hey, uh, you know, don't synthetic stuff. And hmm. so it's like, really interesting there's actually no agreed upon definition like globally for what organic means which is why i said it really comes down to the labeling and even in labeling we're not that consistent can i just say as somebody who's like you know sitting in on my wife's organic chemistry lectures it's kind of driving me nuts because organic in a chemistry context means it's carbon based yeah like you know carbon's the central atom in whatever <laughs> thing molecule you're building and yeah. so it just kind of drives me nuts <laughs> that it's like well everything you're gonna grow is gonna be carbon based like yeah, everything is organic carbon. All of the life. Mm. Where I I wonder how organic became like the the buzzword that it did. Yeah. It's very interesting to me. Yeah, great. I think it probably just sounds good. You know, like organic is not the same as natural. Natural doesn't really mean anything, and organic mm. means maybe more. You know, it's like it's very complicated yeah. because we don't want it to be simple. Right. You could easily write. This is what organic means. Mm-hmm. But it, it there are all sorts of interests that we're not going to get into that yeah. want you to not do that. <laughs> Moneyed interests. Yeah, so, that's exactly what I think. Some ad man was like, ooh, yeah. organic. And a right. chemist that was in the room was like, oh, excuse me. And they were like, shut up, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to tell you the organic. It does me. Uh, shut up, Aaron Aronson. Aaron, go me, back to your sticks. Me mud piles organic. <laughs> Oh, but me fields run with sewage runoff. Oh, oh, well, if I'm under the USDA definition, that would mean it's not organic. (laughs) It's not organic form. My free sticks, I can't put the organic label. It's going to hurt my business. (laughs) Oh, God. Okay. (sighs) So organic means no pesticides or fertilizers that are synthetic. And that would mean like ones that are native to the region are made by plants or animals or the relationships between them. This is kind of how I'm wrapping my head around it. And so if you want to keep pests from eating your crops, you can't just spray them with some chemical that was invented by some agribusiness. And instead, what they typically do is use things like ladybugs, which are aphids or wasps that eat the larvae of other insects. They use bacteria to ward off caterpillars or even something as simple as crop rotation so that when a pest emerges from the stage where it was dormant to when it was mm. going to eat your crop, your crop has already been harvested. Your, your food has moved, sucker. Right. Exactly. Silly pest. Because they'll be like, ooh, it's a tomato plant. I'm going to I'm going to go ahead and put my larvae here. <laughs> and then all of a sudden the farmer shows up and is like, no, there's no tomatoes. Ha ha. You know, if you, can, if you know a lot about <laughs> what a great episode of punked that. Yeah. Yeah. Ashton Kutcher yelling at a caterpillar in the ground. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, sucker, we moved all the tomato plants. <laughs> I'm Demi Moore's ex-husband. Um, to fertilize the crops. <laughs> you know how he says that? <laughs> You know how celebrities announce who they were once married to. <laughs> Not even that he's Mila Kunis' current husband. No, no. It's, ex, it's Demi Moore's no. ex-husband. No, <laughs> Caterpillar. You're messing with Demi Moore's ex-husband. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's and he right. famously moves tomato plants to the next field over. So it's a punk you got punked. You got punked. Caterpillar, don't care how hungry you are. If that's how they keep pests from eating the crops, or in organic farming, you would fertilize crops using manure, compost, or even bone blood, 
meal. And that adds microbes and biomass to the soil, uh, builds up the soil over time, creates more complex ecosystems than traditional, or I guess it's not even traditional, modern farming. And then when you're doing organic farming with animals, you know, meat, poultry, eggs, and dairy products, they come from animals that are given no antibiotics and growth hormones. But again, it's complicated because it depends on where you are in the world. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So obviously organic farming in general is more involved than planting whatever you want and just spraying it with a compound that the plant can ingest for a fertilizer and then spraying with a different compound to keep the pests off it. Like that's modern farming. And we do that at scale with giant machines and like huge systems. Whereas like they call it actually inorganic or synthetic farming. And the fertilizers are then ammonia, nitrogen, sulfur, phosphorus, and they are mixed together in such a way that they have to fertilize again and again because they literally wash off the plants and then get runoff, which is a problem in organic farming, too. I don't want to say only inorganic farming does that, but... my, my understanding of it, right, is like plants need nitrogen to build a lot of things, you know, like it's in yeah. a lot of like your DNA, you need nitrogen in there holding a lot of things together. But nitrogen, uh, naturally occurring nitrogen that's floating around in the atmosphere, right? It's tough to break apart. It's N2, it's two nitrogen atoms stuck together, and they've got a triple bond between them. And so it takes a lot of energy to break those atoms apart and then use them in other stuff. So yeah. Soil bacteria do, fixes it, quote unquote. Yeah, nitrogen fixers. Exactly. That's right. And uses it, but like it's these populations are are difficult to maintain, especially like on mm-hmm. an industrial farm where you're, you're right. planting the same thing over. You'll deplete the nitrogen in the soil. So they turn to these synthetic fertilizers that just dump a bunch of nitrogen onto the soil quickly that's usable for the plants. But then when it rains, it runs off into the water. And then, you know, what uses it is going to be algae. Anybody else that happens to be nearby, which is typically, yes, algaes in runoff farm or runoff ponds and things. Actually, the next line on my script was plants ingest them right away. No microbes needed. So yeah, you're, it's almost Look like you us. see like we're just in sync today. We're so I'm so thankful for you. I'm thankful for you. <laughs> oh, thank so you for you, buddy. and that's exactly right. And I'm really glad that you brought in all, all of that like kind of more complex chemistry because it, it's interesting that you could just spray nitrogen onto plants because then the plant can use it right away. They don't need mm-hmm. a microbe to break it down. But if you're using an organic farming process, then you need to put the nitrogen into the soil you need to have the bacteria there it takes longer but the soil is more complex the soil is better for the plants overall and over time whereas when you're just spraying it on there the soil doesn't get any better the soil Mm. is just gets nothing you know (laughs) the the plant uses it up and then the soil over time need you need to do things to make the soil good again so uh and what organic doesn't mean so if organic means doing all of this stuff with fertilizers doing all this stuff with the way that you're growing the plants and the animals what organic doesn't necessarily mean is pesticide free it doesn't mean that you get an apple and it's organic and there was never a pesticide on it they just can't be synthetic pesticides so a naturally occurring pesticide it's found in plants soil food and water is copper sulfate which doesn't sound very natural because oh chemistry but it is it's totally just a normal thing found all over in nature but it's a natural pesticide so they will get it out of nature out of a natural setting and they will put it on the plants and also the things that i mentioned like bugs and predators and using the the kind of ecosystem against other parts of the ecosystem Organic also doesn't automatically mean healthier. There's no evidence that organic food contains more nutrients necessarily or generally healthier for people to consume. However, organic may be better in finger quotes for some things like for taste. Uh, A Pew Research study said one in three people say organic tastes better. Mm. Um, That's correlation, of course. You know, you spent more money on that. So maybe you have some kind of placebo effect for yourself. Um, Yeah, I would like to see the methods of that survey, whether they gave two people like an organic apple and a a non-organic and like did the the Pepsi challenge, but with an apple, because I'm pretty sure Pepsi's not grown organically. I I don't think so. Maybe. I don't think (laughs) think RC Cola is natural. Yeah, the last natural, but that's why the yield is lower, right? (laughs) You see less RC Cola in the stores because the poor RC Cola farmers are doing traditional cola growing methods. Yes, family farming out here for colas. They they go out there, they plant the cans in the ground, right? And then they put a dead fish on top of it for the nutrients as it decomposes. That's why the cans turn silver, and that's when you know they're ripe. The RC (laughs) is for real cola and then cola, real cola cola. Real cola cola. (laughs) 
So in this Pew Research study, I totally agree. I would want to see the methods. Two and three say it tastes about the same, organic versus modern farming um, mm. or inorganic farming. About one in three say it tastes better. And I think that makes sense. Um, a British Journal of Nutrition study also, same year, uh, says with 350 other studies in a meta-analysis, organic had more antioxidants in it. They had higher organoleptic qualities, <laughs> which means taste, aroma, and mouthfeel. So not everybody cares about those things when they're eating a vegetable or a fruit. Some people don't care. So maybe they didn't notice that it tastes any different at all. As we've learned in our taste versus flavor episode, how everyone tastes things is very different. Very subjective. Right. Saying it tastes better or worse, I don't think is enough to get most people to spend more money on organic. But either way, organic might also be a little bit better for health based on some newer studies. Um, UC Davis, a California ag school, asked some pediatricians, and the most concrete things those pediatricians said about humans and organic was they'd have less pesticide and antibiotic exposure, which makes sense. So that's why I mean health. It doesn't necessarily mean you eat organic, you're going to be healthier. It's more like harm reduction then I, I don't know like i've i've never really been eating organic and i don't have any aphid problems to speak of none in your body right none, now none none that you attacking. know about <laughs> yeah no there's no caterpillars no nothing no yeah yeah you must yeah. be crop rotating really well I, <laughs> <laughs> um that same British Journal of Nutrition study that I just mentioned, uh, the study of 350 studies, found, again, more antioxidants between about 20 and 70% more. They think that the nitrogen spray fertilizer encourages crops with more starches and sugars to compensate within themselves so they get a different flavor, hmm. which makes literally less nutritious food, but it should still taste okay because it's adding starch and sugar to itself. The cor the caloric intake is about the same, but the nutrition is maybe better. You know, it's like a kind of complex dance because, again, plants and the planet are not factories. It's not like mm -hmm. building a cell phone where you're like, oh, well, if I build it in this way, there's more of this in it. It's not how it works. It's not a one-to-one. -one. And so that's why I think when people are like, oh, organic's not better for you. And you're like, right, it's probably not. It is maybe better for the planet. Maybe, which is kind of where I'm going to go next. Um, mm. So there's a website, Our World and Data, and it talks about greenhouse gas emissions, land use, uh, acidification potential, energy use, and eutrophication potential. Mm. Mm -hmm. All of these mm -hmm. things are important when it comes to farming. Greenhouse gas emissions, organic methods are better. By far, almost in every way. Not every way, but almost in every way. And especially for things like fruits. For land use, almost all organic farming methods are worse. Actually, all of them are worse. It requires more land uh, across all different types of farming. Eutrophication potential is the complex one, so I'm going to come back to it. Acidification, I think people understand. There's, It's pretty even, but a little bit better for non-organic or inorganic. Like soil acidification? Yeah. And like then, changing the soil pH? Yes. And so then uh, it's a reduction in pH of water bodies through pollution by sulfur dioxide, nitrogen dioxide gases. Acidification can have important impacts on aquatic ecosystems. Oh, okay, so it's it it's related to like streams and like whatever, yeah. wherever the runoff goes. Okay. Yeah, exactly. And so organic methods are slightly worse there, but again, it depends. Um, and then energy use is a mixed bag. Sometimes organic is better uh, with things like cereal crops. Uh, it's way better with things like vegetables. It's a little bit worse. And so it's like th there's no, oh, yeah, if we switch to organic, everything will be better. That's not the case. Right. Uh, and so let's come back to eutrophication because I think it's really interesting. So for some vegetables, the eutrophication method, the error bars are the entire graphic with it oh centered gosh. way over in organic methods are worse. <laughs> so the reason is there are more minerals in the soil with organic methods. Hmm. And that means eutrophication. And let me tell you what eutrophication is. Please do. Yeah, it's the pollution of water bodies with excess nutrients, which can lead to algal overgrowth and oxygen depletion. So yeah. just what we were talking about, that nitrogen yeah. fixing in the soil gets run off into a nearby water body, and then we get algae and a lot of it. And this mm -hmm. comes because of the way we still do farming, even in organic methods, involves a lot more turnover than in a natural system, right? Uh, this is as I understand it. However, there are things that we need to know about this. It's not just like all of a sudden everything is worse. Most of these studies are done with farms that used to farm inorganically, switch to organic overnight or in their next harvest or whatever. They're not adapting over time to organic mm -hmm. farming. 
right? They're still using modern techniques. So that's why I I have to get back to why experts say it doesn't matter, okay? Hmm. Uh, By the way, organic emits similar greenhouse gases to inorganic farming. There's no conclusive, like, we would suddenly fix climate change if we all switched to organic, even with animals and things. You just don't know. Do you know when they say that, if they're going by, like, yield-wise or what? Um, So according to my research, organic emits similar greenhouse gases. Uh, Ruminant meat has 100 times more greenhouse gas than plant-based food, but grain-fed versus grass-fed beef doesn't seem to matter. It's really just beef. You know, like making beef, no matter how you make it, produces a lot of greenhouse gases. However, aquaculture, which is like fishing and other kind of fish farming, non-trawling fisheries have lower greenhouse gases than trawling fisheries. So like I said, our food system is so complicated. There's so many different types of food. Like think about everything at the grocery store. Everything comes from a different source and from different places and from different systems and from different producing like systems. So it's a real mixed bag. Turns out organic in general, it's probably better for the soil because we're not treating the soil like a plant factory. Uh, It's probably better for biodiversity because we're thinking about the plants, animals, native plants, native insects that are in your farming space, but it's Mm. not necessarily better in every way for everything. So with all that aside, experts said it doesn't matter because switching to all organic overnight is like switching to 100% ethanol overnight. Would we ever do that? No, because we're not going to switch every car in the world to a corn-based gasoline product overnight. It, it would never happen. But what we would do is slowly transition things to EVs and hydrogen and renewable energies and, you know, like find other ways. And over those decades of switching, we'll figure out different things that work better and we'll change the systems that we use. And maybe we won't just go to a gas station and stop for five minutes and then keep going. We'll stop for 20 and that'll just be the way it goes. Organic farming is the same. You know what interests me, though, is um, so organic farming, I assume, also means can't have any genetically modified organisms involved in the process, right? Doesn't no it GMOs. doesn't mean that. Doesn't mean it does that. not. No, GMO is a completely different thing. Oh, right. That's very interesting to me. And we're going to come back to that in just a second. OK. And the reason I, I think it's interesting to say or organic farming is the same as like the transition away from gasoline is because what ends up happening is we think about the foods we're eating differently. So UC Davis, that piece that I mentioned earlier, they categorize different foods by how much pesticide residue was on them. So something like an avocado, a pineapple, you know, cabbage, corn, they are low pesticide residue foods across the board. So there's like a less of a reason and to do uh, or to buy organic, whereas a high pesticide residue food like a strawberry or an apple or a tomato or a grape or spinach, those you might want to buy organic if you want to avoid pesticides. Interesting. The thing is, we aren't considering in any of this, as Julian just pointed out, GMO crops, GMO fertilizers, and other GMO systems. Genetically modified crops can be more resistant to pests. They can be more effective with their fertilizing. They can absorb more energy from the land in a more efficient way. You know, we can change the crops to do these things. However you feel about GMOs, I will tell you this. Science says they're safe. That is what they say. They have tested them many times. And if you are afraid of them, I respect that you are allowed to be afraid of them (laughs) but yeah but there are so many gmos that people don't think of as gmos which literally like everything we've ever hybridized in any capacity throughout agricultural history however now we're doing it just more precisely and i think that's scary to people which i totally understand yeah exactly right like all all the major crops that we have like corn you know 300 years ago did not look like how it looks today if you've eaten an apple You've eaten something that doesn't look like real apples. Like, we, yeah. none of our food products are based on the original thing that they were. Even, like, a banana is a really excellent example. Um, the original banana was, like, kind of round and fat and had seeds in it and was really weird looking and tasted different. And, you know, there's all these different issues with our food system that we think of as, like, oh, well, this is the food. This is the banana. And it's yeah, like, this now is what it's supposed to look like. That's you know? not how it works. And so over yeah. time, maybe we'll use different bananas. Maybe the, the food system will change slowly to answer Chris's question. Like, the food system... We'll never switch from one thing to another overnight. But the more we can move in that direction, the more the food system will adapt. Well, and, you know, going back to Chris's, the specific details of the question, right? If you're interpreting it literally of like, can we switch to organic and still feed everybody? Well, if you also say that GMO 
can still be organic, uh, that makes that goal a lot more attainable, right? Mm -hmm. Like I know one of the things that my wife Katie is doing in like a, a genetics class actually was altering certain soil bacteria with the goal of making them better nitrogen fixers right so if you if you make more robust and effective bacteria you can reduce the need for those artificial fertilizers so then you'd be farming organically but you're using a gmo to make up for that uh, synthetic fertilizer you've taken out of the equation 100 percent. there's no way to know what technologies we would come up with as we transitioned to organic if we decided mm -hmm. to do it so yes, if you took the farmland we have today in the system that we are using now, flipped the switch and said, now you have to use a different system, would people starve? For sure. Millions I, of people I, would probably starve. Yeah. I mean, there's there's instances in history where yes. like a new government comes to power and they're like, we're all doing this, this five-year plan. And then like millions of people starve. Right. And it was like, maybe like a forced shunt like that was yes. not the best option. Right. And yeah. that is, I think, a problem. Right. But yeah. but if you adjust the system over time, if you spend decades or you know years or whatever, the population recovers. And that's exactly how we got a farm system that we got. Right. It's mm -hmm. the population slowly grew. At some point, we were like, oh, my gosh, we really need to learn how to feed all these people. And we started making adaptations in our system in order to do that. Uh, mm -hmm. If we never switch to organic, how many people do you think will die? I think that is a bigger question. How many people will starve if we never switch to organic? Because mm. right now the food systems are essentially living the way the baby boomers lived in the 50s. They're borrowing from the wealth of the future and we have to pay that back. Um, yeah. Remember Earl Butts? How could I forget? <laughs> <laughs> During his tenure as D Department of Agriculture head, food prices went up a lot, like a mm. lot, but he was still considered a success by the Nixon administration because we always have these competing goals to feed everyone. Because so long as he, he wasn't implicated in breaking into the <laughs> DNC's headquarters. I don't know if he was still there. It's a success. The next. If you're saying 72, yeah. Watergate really forced Nixon to resign, I think, right about then. So yeah, yeah he, he'd be there. He'd yeah. be there in Nixon and, and probably the Ford administration as well. I would assume yeah. so. Ford, good good for you, Earl Butts, for not being a criminal, as far as uh, we know. Let's not go that far. That's <laughs> I don't know. I have no idea. I didn't look that up. But when we, when we do this, we have two competing goals in any kind of food system. We want to feed everybody. And then because of capitalism and profit, we really want to make food that everyone wants and make it as cheaply as possible. So when mm -hmm. food prices went up, that was considered a success because farmers were getting more money. In 1972, though, only 4% of America Americans lived on farms. At the turn of the 20th century, it was closer to 45%. And Republicans mm. were promising at this time and had been throughout the middle 20th century to industrialize America's rural areas, bringing jobs to replace the ones that industrialized farming had replaced. This sounds familiar in 2023. Uh, the New York Times actually profiled Earl Butts, and they wrote that he dismisses the critics of the overuse of chemicals by farmers in the same way that he brushes aside concerns about the disappearance of family farming. We turned the farm into a factory. Uh, and so mm -hmm. just to wrap up my question here, even though organic research has mixed results, the environmental research letters study from 2017 said shifting to lower impact foods increases in agricultural output use efficiency would offer larger environmental benefits than switching from conventional to organic. So if we eat different mm -hmm. stuff, then we will affect the planet more than if everybody just switched to organic agriculture, mm. which is incredible to think about. Which is kind of the other half of Chris's question of like, well, like if we didn't eat as much meat, right? right. Those, those two things seem conflated, right? Of they a, do. Organic and versus more, more vegetable-based diet. Yeah. Right. And so meat is delicious. We evolved to eat meat. We love meat. Um, but want it can't, versus can't need it. it is a very different thing, right? We want meat. We don't actually need that much meat. Uh, and so we're borrowing from the future to eat cheeseburgers every day because we're <sighs> damaging the planet. And over time, the reason I said, like, if we no, don't switch to organic, how many will starve? The answer is probably in the billions because our food system could collapse. And if it does, we will lose all of the ability to do a lot of the things with food that we do now, uh, which we do by, like, limping along on a food system that is overtaxed. Um, 
and I don't want to get too preachy here. Kind of already did. Uh, <laughs> science doesn't say go vegan. And I'm not saying go vegan either. People eating vegan diets do tend to live healthier lives. They're not necessarily for longer. But the food system does need us to fix it. Uh, and to fix it involves making adaptations like the ones we're talking about. So, hmm. um, and one example of that is we don't want to create monocultures, which is what we do in our food system. When you eat something in the American food system, we really love a monoculture like a banana. And banana-flavored candy, candy uh, doesn't taste like a banana, right? Anymore. Right. Because that banana yeah. doesn't exist. In the 1960s, it was the Gros Michel, the biggest, yummiest banana around. Uh, but since all bananas are clones, they're grafted together and cloned plants have the same immune system and so banana disease wiped out the gross michelle and we all eat the cavendish which is less good and has been our banana since the 1960s uh however there is now currently another banana disease that is wiping out the cavendish so it may come to a point where we don't have that and that is exactly the problem with monoculture in organic farming is that one thing can show up throw off the system and destroy it the, Aha. the reason cows need antibiotics is because they're living in close quarters, covered in disgusting stuff like their own feces, and they're not living out in a pasture how they were designed to live. So we need to mm. dose them with antibiotics and growth hormones to keep them healthy so that we can eat them. Uh, so our food systems are incredibly complex. They're very powerful. Um, we wouldn't be able to survive with the species without them. However, we shouldn't have to switch to organic for every single type of food. That doesn't mean that we should think our food system is currently perfect and everything we're doing is defensible. That's, that's the end of my question. Wonderful. Speaking of monocultures, though, you know, there are things that are vulnerable because they are basically all genetically the same. And so a single disease can wipe them out. But as I recall, there was uh, like a problem with mangoes that were facing some sort of infection or a parasite. And they're all pretty homogenous. And so they used GMO like modification technology to alter mangoes without changing, you know, the the type of mango that we use primarily commercially. And they just gave it some resistance to this thing. And they saved like mangoes as yeah. we know it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because of like modern genetic editing technology. So there's another example though of like ways that new tools and technologies can can kind of fill in the cracks and repair a lot of these vulnerabilities that uh, we have kind of gotten ourselves into yeah. with our industrialized farming techniques. Yeah. And in Chris's question, you know, I think he very rightfully says that, you know, people are nagging at each other to eat organic or vegan. I think uh, to eat less meat, to do this. And part of it is that there is a sort of climate change style fear amongst people who study food that the food system could collapse and it could collapse at any moment, something like a disease or a slight environmental change change could destroy it. And so we should be prepared for that and know that we can't, again, just like eat cheeseburgers every day. Um, and so those people who are aware of this, that this fear is there, are going to go to people who are ignoring it and say, you should think about what you eat. And I don't think that that's unusual. And in fact, we have examples of this throughout history. From memory, I don't remember exactly how it happened, but the grapes that we all use to make wine, uh, mm. they are grafted onto rootstock. That rootstock grows for a long, long time. However, there are aphids that will eat it. And so there's only a few roots, it turns out, that the aphids don't eat. So a lot of the mm. rootstock in the world is all the same roots that have these different grapes grafted onto them. And so if something oh, were cool. to come along and be able to eat those roots, these 50-year-old wineries with rootstock that go down into the minerality to get the complexities of the what like all that would disappear they wouldn't be able to continue if if these these things happen all the time these you know huge globally changing <laughs> events you know cool thing that i saw recently too though was like speaking of grapes and wineries is uh nasa used like aerial photography and monitoring and like very clever sensors and chemistry to detect like early parasite infections in wineries in Northern California huh. that normally you would have to send people through the vineyard and like inspecting row by row by hand in like a very time consuming expensive process like NASA figured out a way to monitor the health of the crops from the freaking sky. I mean, that's pretty cool. 
the overall point and I think a real answer to Chris's question. We aren't going to all switch to organic. We don't necessarily have to in order to make big changes in our food system and to save the world or whatever you're trying to do. But there are all these technologies that you wouldn't have even thought about if you didn't think about switching to organic. And they're like, oh, we have these problems. Okay, cool. Let's invent some technologies to fix them. So that's why, again, experts say it doesn't matter because we're never going to switch overnight. We're going to switch over time. And when we do that, as we have always done it for thousands of years, we adapt and we make things that work well with what we are trying to achieve, which is to say feed 9 billion people without creating the planet or without destroying the planet. Anyway, on that happy note, let's go ahead and go to a break and come back for Julian's question. If you've turned into this, turned into it, you've <laughs> turned you, into one. You've turned into a science comedy podcast. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. I'm a podcast. Am I going to be late to work? If you're tuned into this science and comedy podcast, chances are that you are someone who loves learning and having a blast while doing it. If it wasn't clear, Trace and I are the same way. We thrive on learning new things because it not only enriches our lives, helps us learn new skills, but also makes us really cool at parties. Is that what we are at parties? Are we? We are, right? We're cool. I mean, when you're at my house and I'm at your house definitely but like other houses anyway <laughs> this is all to say i am super excited about our new sponsor brilliant yay can i kind of get a little like you know in my feels for a second oh yeah get those feels elaborate please hey i see what you did there i am exactly the kind of person that brilliant was made for i have always been interested in math physics computer science when i had the chance to study these things in college years ago i was also really intimidated by them yeah and i avoided taking these classes and honestly i regret it i'm going back now i'm taking classes at my local community college i'm loving it yeah but with a family and work, traditional classes like that, I'm finding them really hard to actually fit into my life. So I was really excited when you told me that Brilliant was going to be a sponsor. That's awesome, man. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. If you don't know what it is, by the way, out there. It's an interactive learning platform with so many lessons on topics that I always wanted to explore, and I can do them at my own pace, on my schedule, and in a way that keeps me engaged. You can learn by doing on their website or with their mobile apps. And there are thousands of different interactive lessons in STEM subjects all across the platform. Their lessons are engaging and interactive. You can brush up on like algebra or advanced math, multivariable calculus, differential equations, computer science, Python programming. You can even learn about cutting edge stuff like large language models, neural networks, the things that are powering AI today. Large language models really be great now. <laughs> large language models. You can learn large language models. <laughs> <laughs> it's only Gaelic, though. The large language that you can learn is Gaelic. Yeah, ship that. I'm in. We can finally communicate with the Scots. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, anyway. Wherever you are in your learning journey, there is a brilliant course that will help you get to the next level. Or, you know, just be basic enough to get you an understanding that you can go and work with. Yeah, they're always adding new courses too. They just launched a ton of lessons focused on analyzing data. That's cool. That's really cool. I think the world would be a better place if everyone had to take a stats class. Oh, totally. And if you haven't taken one, here's your chance. You could just go take a statistics class and make Julian so, so happy. I would appreciate that. Try it out. You can try Brilliant for free for 30 days. Just visit brilliant.org slash absurd or click the link in the show notes. Once again, that's brilliant.org slash absurd. When you sign up, you'll get 20% off the annual premium subscription and it supports the show, even just trying it out. So go ahead check it out, maybe get sucked into a few lessons. Trace and I are going to be here with the rest of the episode when you get back, if you get back. Oh, I hope you get back. They come back and they know more than us about everything. <laughs> They're just like, these guys are idiots. <laughs> their brains are the size, this huge brain coming out of their cranium. I've absorbed all knowledge. Why do I listen to this podcast of dummies? I have no time for your absurd antics. <laughs> But I would definitely take one on large language models. Cool. A Scottish AI robot that nobody can understand. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> turn on the lights. Sorry. I'm the burglar alarm. <laughs> it supports the show. It'll be great. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to That's Absurd. Please elaborate the American Thanksgiving special. Trace's question tackled if we could feed everybody using organic farming methods. And now we're going to talk about the the other side of that, which is the everybody. Oh, people. yeah. Nice. Us. That was a good transition that you just set up for yourself. Totes, my goats. <laughs> and that's 
So the question that I'm going to tackle is from Abby G. She's a listener, and she asked, why do humans come in so many more sorts of shapes and colors than other species? And I thought this was appropriate for Thanksgiving. Now, I'm going to assume that uh, somebody listening, right, may not know or even care about American Thanksgiving. Statistically, it's going to be about a third of people listening, right? right. So I, I, I'll just quick refresher on the holiday is you know supposed to be about when the american settlers were not prepared for the harsh winter in north america and the uh the natives showed them farming techniques and uh shared their food with them and basically kept these settlers alive which i'm sure the natives would never come to regret <laughs> at any point and i'm sure it was totally accurate all of that right. sounds totally accurate yeah 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 right yep yeah 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 no but, nuance but in, there whatsoever so in the history of america though right the the anyway the history that we tell ourselves it's like wow look these people coming together even though they seem so different you know they right. look so different and then in your school plays it's always like the pilgrims with buckles on their hats for some, reason. for some reason, I don't know what a buckle on your hat's going to do. And then like, you know, the natives in their native garb and, and all the paintings, right, has people looking so different. So I thought this question was appropriate because we as people think that other people look really different. And my question that I want to tackle at the root of this assumption is, do we? <laughs> I'm really glad that that's where you went, because that's where I would like, why do humans come in so many more shapes and colors than other species? And right. I think in the uh, true tradition of Thanksgiving, we should sit down and have a real argument around the turkey about that, because I don't think agreed. we actually do come in that many agreed. different colors or shapes. N not that I think that that reflects at all on Abby's question. I think it's a totally legitimate question. I mean, you could like look at all grizzly bears and be like, well, all grizzly bears, I've seen one grizzly bear, I've seen them all. They all look the same to me. And so they're all the same. And it's, they, they're not actually the same. They all look completely wow. different to the grizzly bears. <laughs> Way to be super ursophobic there. Oh, yeah. And, well. and l lumping them all together. I am actually ursophobic. Not... I do not want to be around bear. They would, I, I mean, they are nice and lovely, and but I was scared of bears. Their bears are scary. Bears, me and Stephen Colbert share that same fear, is yeah. bear, bears are bears. quite terrifying. And this is just kind of a tangent, but, you know, we do this. Apparently, the, the words for bear are all kind of like code for, for... It's basically like the Voldemort name for an animal. The, like, creature that shall not be named, right? Is like bear? Bruin. Oh. Yeah. And, or, or Bruin, right, is another word for bear. But Bruin just means brown, like the brown one. Yeah. And supposedly, like, people were so terrified of bears that if they spoke the name, like, they might show up. So they're, yeah, it's so like, like the, don't mention the brown ones. <gasps> yes, the brown ones are coming. <laughs> but that's neither here nor bear. That's, ah, so, <laughs> ah. so, but let's tackle that, that assumption at the root of Abby's question, which is like, do we really have more morphological variability than other species? And, you know, if you've got dogs are a bad example because we bred dogs to all look, you know, to super different, different depending yeah. on the breed. Um, but, yeah, you might think like, well, dogs are so different. But if you have two dogs of the same breed, like German Shepherds, they might look identical at a glance to, you know, uh, uh, somebody who's just meeting them for the first time. But if you're their owner, like you can tell them apart in an instant. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it really speaks to that how familiarity uh, makes us realize the, the differences that separate individuals. And we're super, super good at picking up on this with people. Yeah. And we'll get to that in a second. Yeah. But let's tackle that assumption, though, of like, are we more different from one individual to the next compared to other animals? Yeah. And it turns out uh, Abby's not the first person to ask this. In 2009, uh, Anne E. McKellar and Andrew P. Hendry published a study in PLOS One. And they ask the same thing compared to other animals. Are humans more variable, less variable? Where do we where do we land on this? I think it's a really interesting so, question. Like, I want to know the answer. So that's why we picked it for this podcast. So I'm glad yeah, that there's a study. Yeah. So they focused on two characteristics, and that would be height or for some animals like length. You know, mm -hmm, they kind of mm -hmm. use them interchangeably. Sure. Right. And then let's just say like the longest axis, like whatever the measurement you know, was on that. That's the problem with length, width and depth. When you're looking at the Ikea website, you're like, I wouldn't have called that width. 
I would have called that something else. That's height. What are you talking well, about? Ikea, they'd probably call it like Malmo, and that's actually... <laughs> it's 18 Malmos high, and you're like, what? The... So, right, they, they compare like the length slash height of humans and other animals, and they compare the mass, right? Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. how much the, the variability there is in weight. And what's actually really interesting is when it comes to height within a population, because they studied like humans within certain populations, right? Like a small kind of subset and then like across populations, right? Like people in different areas. Within populations, uh, when it comes to height, humans are way less variable than most other animals. Really? Because I'm I'm thinking of like... You remember Amy share a title on D News? She's yeah. like five foot and I'm six two, but I wasn't even the tallest person there. It was always so Max and he was like six five. And then Alex, the shooter guy, is like six seven. That seems like a really big variable, like variability to me is two feet. Yeah. Yeah, it does. But again, let's talk about like populations, which is like people mm-hmm. from mm-hmm. like the mm-hmm. same kind of area, same sort of, you know, background. Like how much are, are they the same or different when it comes to height? This study found that the mean within population variance for male and female humans uh, with our height, we fell in the eighth for males and the fourth percentile for females so and again percentile is like the lower the number the lower you are on like the The chart variability there is a variability here right so that means like we we compared to the other species that they looked at we are way less variable in height than most other species uh Hmm. when we're talking about within a population now when you go across populations right like people from groups of people from different areas then things even out a little bit more and in in that respect males and females were in the 47th and 51st percentiles respectively there which is pretty much smack dab in the middle that's just average that's just a normal amount of variation yes exactly so when it comes to something like height uh, or length, you know, just like body length, your number one dimensional of your size. Malmos, how many Malmos you yeah, got? Yeah, <laughs> how many Malmos you stack up as? <laughs> we're we're pretty similar, even when you're looking across populations yeah. to other animals. Now, mass, as in you know, like how much how much post Thanksgiving, uh, you know, belt loosening you have to do from one person to the next, sort of thing. There's a lot more variability there among human populations Mm. right we uh yeah we are in the uh 56th for men and 60th percentile for women in terms of mass variability but Mm. there's a lot of things that can kind of confound that like height is going to be really based on like genetics and environment that you're in and and nutrition too yeah yeah well i guess that would be part of environment but not nearly as much nutrition wise as like mass yeah right like and that's going to be influenced by your socioeconomic status right like Mm -hmm. how much food do you have access to right even if like somebody living in the same area is much wealthier and they can afford more right right are are they going to have more mass than you are or if they have access to like healthier food that sort of thing Mm -hmm. So there's a lot more variability within populations compared to other animals and mass, but that's just kind of a product of the world that we've created for ourselves, right? Going back to like farming that we were talking about and how complicated it is and how complicated the world is now. Yeah. Like, you know, even even though we're all human beings on this big earth, like the access to food and the type of food that we can eat and the nutritional value of that food, just from one person to the next in the same kind of geographical area can be really really different yeah and that's going to determine all sorts of different characteristics and life lifespans and all sorts of stuff yeah exactly exactly but height is not as impacted by that as uh, as mass as weight apparently is Hmm. so i thought that was really fascinating like yeah when you look at this kind of singular dimension not that different yeah so that answers a bit of abby's question about say shapes 
So that's our shapes. Yes. Our shapes are actually not that variable. We're either average or below average, depending on how you look at it. Yeah. But there is a part of humans that has a lot of variability, <gasps> even compared to other animals. Which is? And that is our faces. Oh. Yeah. I was, so I was, there was, wow, I wouldn't have guessed that. Yeah. I was thinking about like hair. Hair. We'll call that part of the well, face. Well, because I was That's thinking like, when I think of animals with lots of variability, I think of like cats and dogs and other animals with furs and stripes and i'm like are, is our hair more variable cal berkeley published some research uh, by behavior ecologist michael j sheehan uh, from uc berkeley and they noted that uh, humans our faces have a lot more variability visually compared to other animals so the thinking behind this is that we're so visually based and we and we rely on sound mm-hmm, a lot mm-hmm, of, mm-hmm. of our senses, right? So we have become more variable in, in our faces because it really helps with identification. Whereas for other animals, different outward appearances may not be as important as like the smell that they give off, oh, right? Oh, got it. That makes yeah. total sense. Like ants use... Uh, you know, pheromones and stuff when they're navigating. So it doesn't really matter what one ant looks like to another ant, but they're going to have a very distinctive pheromone that's like, ooh, you know, Aaron Aronson was here. He's, he must be heading back to his <laughs> sticks. I smell the mud pile. <laughs> <laughs> they don't need to see that he's covered in mud. They don't need to do that to yeah. know he's Aaron Aronson. Exactly. So um, because we're so visual, our faces have a lot more variety to help us with identification. Other animals don't really need this. But they were working off of data from a 1988 U.S. Army anthropometric survey. Oh, I love that. And they looked at other traits, right? Like um, lengths of your hands and then facial traits that are or other traits that are independent of your facial trait. And they found that there's not as much variability there compared to a lot of facial features. Hmm. Like those have way more differences from one individual to the next, even if you're, you know, more closely related. Neat. So, yeah. But here's the real kicker. Okay. Here's what I think is most interesting. According to Eleanor Scaring, who is the head of the Human Paleosystems Group at the Max Planck Institute of Geoanthropology, humans have never looked more alike than they do right now. (gasps) We are... What? We are more similar now, especially compared to the first humans. She thinks there is way more variability in the very first Homo sapiens than there are today. I don't even... I don't even know how to process that. I had to yawn. I got so I, my brain got so hot. I was just like, what is <laughs> it needed more oxygen. Yeah, I was, but when, but I just. You want me to go into why? I'm just trying to figure it out because it's like okay. I know that when it comes to the anthropological or like the ancient paleontological record of humans, we don't have that much information. Mm-hmm. We have bones. Mm-hmm. We have very small fragments of most of those bones, and very few big fragments or full skeletons. And so it's just like it's easy for us to picture. All of this type of animal looked like Lucy or Artie yeah. or any of the number of other like ancient human, you know, forenses. And so you're just like, oh, yeah, they all look like that. And you're telling me they don't? They all look completely different? As as most things in science, you know, the, it's not completely settled one way or sure. another. But uh, Scary puts forward this idea that's that's she says is becoming more popular she wrote this article in 2018 that's gaining more ground that we didn't all come from just like one tribe in east africa okay so the reason we thought that to begin with is we have traced back you know anthropologists and genetic scientists have traced back the lineage of where the mitochondria in our cells came from right yes because mitochondria is passed down from mother to children. So you can look at, you know, our, the mitochondria in a person and you can work backwards to, you know, yeah. who came from where, who came from where, right. who came from where. And you can take all the threads of, you know, how the DNA and the mitochondria have mutated and changed a little bit. And you can kind of rewind the clock and start figuring out like where it must have come from, where the mutation like happened, that sort of yeah. thing. And they traced it back to what they call the mitochondrial Eve. And the mitochondria are most similar to people currently living in East Africa. So we think, okay, this is this is where humans came yeah. from. Or at least that's what we right. thought. 
Now, what Scary talks about, though, is when you look in the um, the record that we dig up, what we're looking for, you know, around 200,000 years ago, which is when we think the mitochondrial Eve lived, is the emergence of tools, but not tools like a rock tied to a stick, specifically tools where, like, we chipped a piece off of a rock to make, like, a sharper rock chip. Right. And then connected that to a stick and maybe with like glue or something else that we you know had to boil and concoct and it shows this this planning this cognition where you can understand oh i'm not just taking two pieces of my environment and putting them together i can understand what will happen if i break a piece off of this rock and use it for something else so i will plan this more complex series of steps to make a tool right and we think that's a real hallmark of our species of homo sapiens but the issue in the geological record is we find these tools near other you know skeletons that are left behind but their features don't nearly match ours as homologously as you would think there's somewhere like their faces may be more like ours you know like the the shape and the teeth mm-hmm. but then they have like elongated brain case for their skull stuff like that yeah. or like you know the 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 more sloped eyebrows that you might think of as like a, a crow magnet yeah. or a caveman or something like that right but they're contemporary with you know skulls that look like ours but they're just in other parts of africa and they have these more advanced tools so hmm. she likens it to a river where you get like a path that branches off but then eventually it comes back so these early homo sapiens in Africa, hundreds of thousands of years ago, would get separated, you know, yeah. and the populations would change a little bit as they tend to do, right? Like there's phenomenons in evolution, right? There's different ways that traits can be selected, right? Based on the evolutionary pressures put on it, right? right? You can have like a stabilizing. Yeah, you have a flood, and a bunch of animals get separated onto an island, and that island is separate for thousands of years, and then all of a sudden the waters yeah. recede, or there's a drought, and a bunch of those animals yeah, start exactly. to mix again, and it's like, wow, yeah, we're related but like not really but you also look very similar but very different and yeah and so i i get that they're not you know we're not different species yet the same way that you might have like two dog breeds that look really different but you can still interbreed and get viable offspring Mm -hmm. so you know they're not they're not separate species so you can get these traits that like some populations get kind of pushed toward because of the the pressures on them to evolve and you know just the randomness of genetic variability and what gets passed down and then they come back into contact with another population they mix they match and they become a little more homologous so you might say hundreds of thousands of years ago that these separated populations are all still humans yeah but they start looking really different and then they come together again the reason today that humans have so many similar features is because about Twelve thousand years ago you enter uh the holocene period which is where the climate becomes stable and it becomes possible to start growing crops regularly and like you know expecting that your your harvest is going to be there next year well look at that i didn't mean to tie it into your question but that kind of worked out perfectly that works very well (laughs) yeah so Because, like, we finally enter this stable period, these agricultural societies that can farm have a real advantage, and they start to grow, and they start to spread out across the world, but that's in the really recent past, you know? And they they spread across the globe, and some of these traits like, you know, skin color and height... They're very much correlated with latitude because there's advantages to being darker skinned near the equator, near the equator and paler and taller, farther away from the equator, you know, but we're still overall really, really similar because of that intermixing and then the fairly recent spread thanks to the development of agriculture that allowed us to really boom and expand outward hmm. from from africa so to answer abby's original question of why why do we come in so many more sorts of shapes and colors than other species we really really don't yeah we're all 
really similar to each other, even compared to 200,000 years ago from one human being to the next. We are so much more alike today than we've ever been, and we're just as variable as any other species. So I think on Thanksgiving, or if it's just a normal Thursday for you, you know, it's something to take into account that people from one part of the world to the next or, you know, from from totally different areas and cultures, we're all still people. We're all fundamentally, we're all kind of working with the same hardware. Yeah, we're all homo sapiens sapiens. Not that different. Yeah. Yeah, that's us. That's nice. I like that. Happy Thanksgiving, Julian. Happy Thanksgiving, Trace. Thanks for asking your questions, Abby, and also Chris. Uh, And I hope that we answered them to your satisfaction. And if we didn't, uh, you're welcome anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I love being thanked. Thank me. <laughs> um, Julian, say something you're thankful for this year. You know, this podcast has been actually a real bright spot because, um, you know, you asked me to do it kind of on a lark. Yeah. I really, really look forward to recording with you. I have a great time. And then on top of that, like, we're carving out like a little a little niche. We got listeners yeah. submitting questions all the time. We can see the numbers on like who's listening and how many people. And like there, there's like a thousand some odd people out there that are tuning in and catching us. And it's been like just this really fulfilling, fun educational experience and so i know it's total hacky panderiness but like i really am i've been grateful for for what we were doing here yeah i you know i i think that was that's a great answer it's a little bit of you know a little pandering but that's okay it's also hacky you you guys are the real heroes (laughs) (laughs) but i think that's a really good answer and i would say i am thankful for just the ability to get to do stuff like this mine isn't that different right like i love just learning something and then being able to tell people about it so you could say that it's a similar answer but it's it's a just a slightly different one in that i enjoy doing that so so much and being able to do that here i'm very thankful for that i'm also thankful that you're my friend oh heart yeah heart hearts sign hearts hearts all around love you buddy all right so with that let's wrap up this thanksgiving episode go hang out with your family or something people who are listening to this and uh, thank you so much for doing that for listening if you haven't rated us on your favorite podcast app go ahead and leave us a few stars it really really helps tell other people that you're listening that you're out there and that they should spend their time with us Uh, and we really appreciate every single one of you have rated so far and those of you who have rated who we sent stickers I hope you got them and I hope you like them Uh, and then also I would like to say that uh, if you haven't subscribed or followed or told a friend about the podcast, please do that. It's Thanksgiving. Maybe send it to them so they can listen to it this weekend or something like that. Yeah, they're not doing anything. Yeah, they're not doing anything. It's Thanksgiving. <laughs> they got free time. They got they got the extended weekend. To <laughs> f- spend an hour listening to a friend's recommendations. The least they can do. They owe you. You could listen to it at 2x. I don't know how, but you could <laughs> if you want to spend a half hour. <laughs> but anyway, this episode was written uh, by Julian and myself, Trace. It was edited by by our producer, Kyle, who everyone should have a Kyle. He's the best. I'm thankful for Kyle, very much so. Thankful for Kyle. And, <laughs> and with that, we will see you in two weeks with another episode of That's Absurd. Please elaborate. <laughs>